Today on the show, we're going to be talking more about this flat earth theory, and we're going to have rocket scientist Jason Pratt on to discuss it with us. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Yes, just like I said in the introduction, we're going to continue on with uh, rocket scientist Jason Pratt uh, speaking about this flat earth theory that has been going around. Friends, uh, if you are part of the flat earth movement, just know that uh, in no way am I attacking anybody's salvation. Neither is Jason. Uh, In fact, it's respectable because a lot of you are starting with the foundation of the scriptures. And if you are, I I can respect that. And you're trying to reach the truth. Uh, We certainly disagree with you. But whatever the case, just know that in no way are we attacking. We love you guys. You're still our brothers in Christ. Uh, But can we all agree that we want the truth? We all want to represent Christ correctly. We want to represent uh, the truth as revealed in the scriptures Uh, correctly. Okay, we can all agree about that. And that's why the Bible says iron sharpens iron in so many different ways as believers um, come together and clash in a friendly way and, and work these topics out. We all become sharper as Christians. This is not a salvation issue. All right. So anyway, yeah, we're going to have Jason Pratt on today. Last week, we talked about a few things that, that um, there was a lot of good points that were made last week. Uh, I really enjoyed last week's podcast, or rather, I should say uh, three days ago. Uh, I'm going to release this one a little bit early due to um, some things, some engagements that uh, my family and I are going to be involved in. And I'm going to be a little bit busy here for a little bit. uh, And then I'll be back on within about a week, a week to week and a half. I'll be back on the podcast again, cranking them out again. So I just want to release this before uh, these things uh, take place. So anyway, some of the things we talked about that I thought were really interesting, and I don't think there is any way around this one, and I just want to reiterate this. This might be one of those points that you memorize. Keep in your mind, because when you encounter a flat earther, uh, this is something that's irrefutable. There's no way around it, Uh, and that would be the North Star versus, oh man, I just drew a blank. Uh, (laughs) Well, let me explain the North Star issue. Uh, We talked about this last episode with uh, Polaris, the North Star, and that when you uh, you can sit there on your in your backyard or wherever uh, at night with a time lapse camera and watch all of the stars in the sky rotate in a circular motion around Polaris. That's true anywhere in the northern hemisphere. Although, Polaris will appear in different parts of the sky as you travel around the globe, right? Correct? Does that make sense so far? Now, uh, in the flat Earth model, we have a a flat Earth, okay? It's shaped like, kind of like a pancake, and the North Pole would be right in the center, okay? And then the South Pole is actually 
an ice ring that surrounds, here I am using hand signals like you can actually see me, that surrounds this uh, flat earth pancake, if you will. Or last time I used the analogy of a clock. It's kind of like a clock. And the South Pole would be the wall, the outer rim of the clock. The North Pole would be right at the center where the hands are coming out. Okay, so far, this idea of Polaris doesn't seem to be a problem. But when you get to the South Hemisphere, suddenly you can't see a lot of the stars that you see in the Northern Hemisphere, right? And you then notice that there is another point in the southern sky that the stars uh, will rotate around. In the northern hemisphere, uh, oh boy, uh, forgive me if I have this backwards, but if I remember right, in the northern hemisphere, everything is rotating around uh, the north star in a, uh, I think it's the clockwise format. Please forgive me if I have this backwards. Um, And then in the southern hemisphere, you have another uh, point in the sky that everything rotates around. Uh, and I forget the name of the star, but you guys, you can go back and check it out. Everything rotates around that star, but backwards, uh, counterclockwise, I believe. Okay. And again, I might have that backwards, but either way, it's opposite of the, 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 the northern. Guys, there is no way I challenge any flat earther to come up with some kind of model that makes that work. There is no way to make that model work on a flat earth. It can't be done. It just cannot be done. Another thing we talked about was uh, the moon. You know, you can uh, look at the nighttime moon And everybody on the planet sees the same exact, when you see the moon in the sky, you see the same side of the moon, no matter where you are on the planet. But you can have two people on a flat earth model, look at that moon, hundreds and possibly thousands of miles apart, and see the moon at the same time. Now you're looking at it, again, this is a flat earth model now, if you were looking at the moon from distances apart, you would see different angles at the same moon. Draw this out on a piece of paper and you'll see what I'm talking about. You'll see different angles. Well, the flat earth position holds that the moon is actually much smaller than what we are told by modern science. And again, I'm not 100% down with everything we hear from modern science. You hear a lot of podcasts from me, very critical of evolutionary science. Okay, so I'm not, I I, want to test all things, right? Just like the word says, test all things. Of course, I just took that out of context. That's referring to scripture, but (laughs) whatever the case, you want to test all these things. You want to look at it. And if you're looking at the moon from a flat earth perspective, and you're looking at the moon from two different spots on the planet at the same time, you should be seeing different angles of the moon. But you don't, because the moon is way out there, it's far away, and we're seeing the exact perspective because of the distance away. Anybody can go and buy a, of course, not anybody, but anybody that's got a little bit of money can go and buy a decent telescope and sit in your own backyard and do these experiments. Guys, to cover something like this up would be a conspiracy that would be so huge, so large. So, uh, you know, we really have to look at this stuff and, and, and consider all that needs to happen and consider both models and say, okay, how can this work? In reference to the North Star and that southern region that I cannot remember the name of, 
there's no possible way to make it work. There's no way. Uh, the, the moon situation I just brought up, there's no way to make that work, guys. Now, um, when, you, when you're considering these various bits and pieces of evidence that suggest that the Earth is flat, um, and you know what? I wear a tinfoil hat at times too, okay? So I know that real conspiracies do exist in certain areas of the world. Let's face it, they do. And really, by definition, I think a conspiracy is really just, you know, two or more people working together to uh, uh, with a common secret goal, right? Secret cause. It's something along those lines. Those types of conspiracies, things happen, okay? Um, when you encounter on a website, and my goodness, there's a lot of conspiracy websites out there, is there not? <laughs> and it's funny too, because you can look at the same chunks of information, same data, and come up with a like 10, 15 different really convincing and sometimes even comical conspiracy theories on what that data really means. Anyway, guys, I'm drawing this thing way out. My point in all of this is when you look at, when you see these conspiracies, don't pick that ball up and run with it until you've really taken some time to examine each of the bits of evidence. Where did they come from? Who's presenting the evidence? Has the evidence been uh, doctored at all? Is there assumptions that are being put in? Almost always there's piles and piles of assumptions that are put to the forefront. Um, whenever there's a conspiracy presented, my suggestion is that you default on the side of skepticism. Uh, there are a lot, like I said, a lot of legit conspiracies going on. Uh, but as we all know, just go on the internet and start looking at conspiracy websites. And again, you can look at any one event where there's some conspiracy around it. Uh, and man, you can come up with so many wild and crazy seemingly very believable theories coming from all over the web, okay? And the people that are teaching these different theories teach them as absolute fact that they've got it all figured out and they know and that everybody else is wrong. Uh, and I think, so again, when you encounter conspiracy, uh, I think it would be wise to have a certain level of skepticism, examine every bit of evidence because you know what? Uh, you might be getting steamrolled with a pile of evidence and every single one of the bits of evidence are faulty in one way, shape, or form. So anyway, um, <laughs> I have ranted for a while here. I need to get to this awesome interview with Jason Pratt. Again, his website, theanvilministry.com, uh, his up-and-coming podcast that uh, I cannot wait for him to crank out. Uh, I will definitely announce it when he does hit that thing and go live, uh, but his his podcast is going to be called It's Not Rocket Science, uh, and so be looking forward to that. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump back in where we left off with the podcast uh, on Monday. Another one of the questions that you see in a lot of these videos, when people are, are flying or they're on the top of a high mountain or something like that, why does the horizon still look flat? Right. You know, I've, I've flown, it kind of depends on a number of factors. Um, I've, I've flown at high altitude in the F-14, um, high enough to start seeing, you know, the darkness of space and, and start to see uh, the curvature uh, of, the, of the Earth. But again, it kind of depends on atmospheric conditions as well, because we have to realize that our atmosphere basically acts like a lens. 
Um, but it's not a fixed lens because um, the lens, if you will, of, of our atmosphere, the air uh, that we breathe, uh, is dependent on a number of things. It's dependent on uh, temperature uh, primarily of the air uh, and the temperature of different altitudes. And uh, if that temperature is not necessarily a, a consistent uh, change, uh, primarily, you know, on average, it goes, the temperature uh, decreases about two degrees per thousand feet. Um, but sometimes you get things like temperature inversions. Um, you can get other interesting atmospheric effects um, with shearing and movement of uh, the air, changes in density. It will basically change the prescription, if you will, of, of our lens. Uh, that we look through when we look through our atmosphere. Um, you know, that lens does a variety of things. It allows us to, uh, you know, it, it, it causes the, the large uh, full moon, uh, the super moon that we saw recently based on, you know, the, the, the distance from the Earth to the moon being relatively small or smaller uh, than, than it typically is uh, this past fall. Uh, but then it being low on the horizon and coming through a lot of air, a lot of the uh, atmosphere, uh, basically has an enlargement, a focusing effect. Um, but again, there's there's times when at, at altitude you may not see, even at the same altitude, it may not look as uh, as curved. Um, I've launched uh, we, one of our research projects that uh, um, was to launch uh, basically weather balloons, hot air balloons, um, or not, they're, they're, they're filled with uh, what are those balloons filled with? They're filled with you know I don't remember. I think they're filled with nitrogen. But in any case. You know, we, we have to go up and we put, like, GoPro cameras on them, and they go up uh, extremely high until the balloon finally bursts uh, and then falls to Earth, and we videotape that. And, and we see, again, the curvature of the Earth. So we do see it, um, but it depends on the altitude, and it also depends um, when you're flying at passenger jet altitude, you're not going to be high enough. And that's just simply because of the radius of the Earth. The size, the radius of curvature uh, in particular is, is so great that um, even at those altitudes at 40,000 feet, it's just simply not quite enough um, to, to be able to reveal the, um, the curvature. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I would imagine we're going to have somewhat of the same effect here, but another um, objection, if the earth is spherical, how can we sometimes see the Chicago skyline 60 miles across the lake, uh, Lake Michigan, if the earth is curved? Okay. So at that distance, being that the Earth is curved, you know, at that distance, uh, the uh, Chicago skyline should be 2,166 feet below the horizon, but yet there's times when we can actually see it. Why is that? Right. Yeah. You know, and that's that's an interesting uh, question. So, um, you know, that was uh, um, most I think most recently occurred last year in April uh, of 2015. And uh, a photograph was taken of the Chicago skyline uh, from the Grand Mirror State Park in Michigan. Um, and it's an impressive photograph, and you really can see uh, the skyline uh, quite well. Um, there are other photographs of the skyline um, of Chicago, but instead of uh, appearing upright, it's inverted. Um, so we have instances when you can see a, uh, um, a normal-type skyline and then other instances where you see that skyline, uh, but it's inverted. It's upside down. Um, both instances are the result of, again, atmospheric effects, like I talked about, in the atmosphere being a lens. A lens can uh, also act, you know, mirror, basically, as a lens. And whether you see something um, upside down or right side up depends on whether your lens is convex or concave. 
and mm -hmm. uh, where the focus uh, ends up being based on the geometry of your lens. And so, you know, our eye, uh, the way it operates, basically creates a focus on our retina, and all the images that we actually see are upside down because our uh, our eyeball is uh, convex. And so um, that creates a focal point behind the lens on the retina, and our brain has to correct everything we see, and it's upside down. And so that can happen um, based on atmospheric effects. Um, you know, again, temperature inversions will create this. Um, and then if it creates, again, a, a situation where the lens is essentially concave, then the focus will be in front of the, the lens and the image will appear right side up. You do the same thing if you pick up a spoon and look into a shiny spoon, uh, you'll see yourself upside down. And then turn the spoon around um, and you'll see yourself right side up. So th that's just uh, basically a lens effect that is occurring in the atmosphere uh, that is displaying what's called a superior mirage, uh, superior meaning that it's above the horizon um, of where it actually is. And so, yeah, almost half a mile uh, below is able to basically reflect like a, a mirror um, the, the image of the skyline. So it's a unique uh, atmospheric effect. Uh, but, it, you know, again, it, it can be described by uh, uh, some, some basic physics. It's, it's not that... Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, unreal uh, to, to see it. And, you know, we see mirages all the time of various, uh, various types. Um, so it's, it's basically a, uh, a, you know, a, a phenomenon uh, that's, that's really shouldn't be too hard to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, what about this one? Uh, I had this one thrown at me by a, a friend of mine. Uh, planes as they're taking long flights, I just took a mission trip to China in last October. During these long flights, they don't keep dipping their nose to compensate for the curvature of the Earth. So why don't they fly off into space on long flights? Yeah, that's a good question. So a couple of things are happening there. Um, in reality, they, they are dipping their nose. So uh, we are. Um, and uh, the the way the aircraft flies, you know, the, the flight dynamics are basically uh, in uh, work to balance uh, all the forces to maintain a uh, straight and level flight. So when we're flying straight and level, maintaining a certain altitude, uh, that is an altitude above the Earth, uh, the Earth being a sphere. We have to balance primarily uh, the forces of lift, uh, which is generated from uh, air moving over the wings, and, uh, and then the weight of the aircraft. Now, there's a couple things happening to, for, for that to kind of work out. Uh, that, that weight vector, you know, it's kind of a, a vector mathematics going on here. <clears throat> We're balancing an upward vector or an arrow uh, of a certain length pointing up and a downward pointing, uh, and that's due to lift, and then a downward pointing arrow uh, of a certain length due to the weight of the aircraft. Now, as we're flying, the weight of the aircraft is changing, reducing the weight um, because we're burning fuel. What that does then, that would create an imbalance, and the aircraft would constantly start to rise uh, if we didn't uh, balance it. So what we can do is we can either slow down or uh, we can kind of uh, trim the nose so that the vectors change a little bit uh, and changing the, the orientation of uh, the lift vector. Um, additionally, as we're traveling over the surface, particularly on very long flights like to, to China, um, we are traveling in that great circle route. Uh, additionally, the vector is kind of constantly uh, reorienting itself, but the weight vector was the center of the Earth. Uh, likewise, the, the aircraft is trimmed in such a way to uh, keep all the vector um, 
directions uh, normalized or balanced to, uh, in order to do that. So the pilot doesn't have to actively, uh, because we use autopilot a lot now, uh, the way that the aircraft is trimmed, it, it keeps the, the vectors um, normalized. And as long as uh, the, the earth is uh, spherical, uh, then look and, and the weight will bounce. Now we have to retrim again as we burn the weight. But on, on a flat earth, we change the way, if there was a disc, we have to change the way that we fly the aircraft. Um, and again, the mathematics would change. All of our assumptions would be different. Um, so again, the mathematical models would have to be corrected. And yet, I'm able to uh, plan a great circle route. I'm able to fly the great circle route. I'm able to trim the aircraft and fly the aircraft, all based on the presumption that the Earth is indeed a sphere. Yeah. Uh, what about this one? Um, at higher altitudes, the atmosphere would have to travel at higher speeds to keep up with the Earth, Earth because it would have to travel at an increasingly further or farther distance. Um, it, first of all, is that true? And how can this be reconciled with the spherical Earth? Does that make sense? Right, yeah, it, it sure does. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So um, the, uh, the aspect there is that uh, it would have to assume that, again, our um, atmosphere is basically solid, uh, but it is not. It is a, it is a, a fluid. Uh, it is a, a gaseous fluid, so it, it has fluid properties, which means that fluids um, can uh, flow, right? So, so water can flow, and you can have aspects of the fluid um, where some parts of the fluid are traveling faster than others if it's in a column. Um, and so you have basically what uh, amounts of boundary layers developing. So, for instance, when you turn on uh, your water in your sink, uh, you will have aspects of the fluid flowing through the pipes, um, at the surface, the pipes are slower, and then um, and then at the center, it's flowing a little faster, and so you have a, bound, a, a small boundary layer, um, and, and there's shear forces going on. That means that you have um, fluid particles rubbing against each other and, uh, and creating differences in speed. Uh, now, that is actually fundamental to, uh, to aircraft and, and Bernoulli. And Bernoulli's equation basically uh, kind of assumes this and understands um, <clears throat> the aspects of shear layers uh, and then the, the influence of, um, of, or the, the resultant uh, impact of pressures changing. So a wing basically creates uh, some boundary layers and then causes uh, the fluid to have to move more quickly over the top surface of the wing than on the bottom surface. Uh, because uh, an, an air particle has to travel uh, a greater distance over the top of the wing than the, the bottom of the wing, um, so it has to speed up. And what that does is it creates uh, a lower pressure uh, on the wing, which is what creates lift. And lift is basically uh, sucks the aircraft upward, or the wing uh, upward, the airfoil. Um, so likewise, the, the fluid on the Earth, uh, about the Earth and our atmosphere, um, mostly nitrogen and then some oxygen, um, is at the surface of the planet kind of being pulled along um, due, to, due to drag forces. Uh, so the, the surface of the Earth is kind of pulling, if you will, uh, the fluid. Uh, it sets up a boundary layer, so the, the fluid is moving most rapidly at the surface of the planet, moving with uh, the, the surface, and then it slows down as it moves upwards uh, in altitude. And um, a number of things happen, too. Uh, the fluid is not homogenous. Uh, that means it's not the same all throughout. Um, so the partial pressure and the gases 
that are present at the surface is different than what's at the uh, at great altitude. Um, so that means the composition of the air changes slightly as you go up. That's why if you climb uh, in mountaineering, it's harder to breathe. Uh, or if you go from uh, sea level and go to the Mile High City of Denver, uh, it can be uh, difficult uh, uh, when you exert yourself. You might get a little altitude uh, sickness or dizziness because there's less oxygen. Uh, the partial pressures are different. And so uh, uh, that also will affect um, the response or, or how uh, the fluid of our atmosphere uh, behaves um, based on altitude. So with, with, the, wind, with the, the air moving kind of with the speed of the Earth more or less, um, that's why we don't experience 1,000-mile-per-hour winds at, at the surface um, if it was stationary. Um, but then at the same time, uh, the, the movement of the air uh, at a great altitude uh, towards the outer reaches of our atmosphere are then much slower, not faster, um, because, of, again, shear forces and some slowing down and drag, atmospheric drag. Uh, so there's a lot going on. But all that being said, that's kind of an oversimplification because there's much stronger forces at play here, and those forces are due to uh, the heating and cooling of the Earth uh, um, based on, you know, <clears throat> areas of <clears throat> light uh you know, and, and the sunlight that's heating up uh, the land and sea masses or water masses, um, or, you know, in, in the daytime and then at nighttime, those uh, masses then cooling down, and that creates convective uh, currents, uh, basically just uh, heating and cooling of the uh, atmosphere. And that's where a lot of our weather um, uh, phenomena comes from. Um, the, the flow of uh, air, the changes in, uh, in atmospheric pressures, um, humidity and all the rest. So th this just is what creates the reality of, um, of what we experience every day in, in both uh, weather and wind and, um, and then the atmosphere uh, not spinning off the planet and not uh, spinning at great velocity at great altitude uh, at the re outer reaches of our atmosphere. So hopefully that kind of answers the question. Um, there's kind of a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah. And I guess in that same vein then, it sounds like the answer is going to be basically the same thing uh, I've heard it said in some of these videos that you can you know you take a, a tennis ball and you dip it in water and then you throw it up in the air and have it spin you know give it a good spin you'll see all the water flying out uh, due to centrifugal force and they ask the question well why doesn't the oceans fly off the earth if we're spinning at a thousand miles per hour yeah that's a good question I, I came across that a lot too and that's uh, you see that uh, pretty routinely. Um, there's a couple things that are really important, and, and um, you know, I, not to uh, um, you know, not to be uh, condescending, but a, a lot of these arguments really demonstrate a, a pretty significant um, lack of knowledge of, of physics. Um, now, <laughs> granted, they will buy themselves an out again because these physics do kind of presuppose uh, by necessity. Um, uh, the Newtonian mechanics, which requires gravity. And so a lot of these uh, folks will say, well, gravity is, is also a myth, and it's uh, not really occurring. Um, it's, it's, it's forces of acceleration. So they might get a little bit of a pass there. But again, a lot of these aspects, just uh, um, we, we kind of break them down a little bit because um, there's a significant difference between an acceleration, one, and a velocity. So... Um, when your velocity is constant, you're experiencing zero acceleration. 
when uh, velocity is changing, um, then you are then experiencing a uh, requisite amount of acceleration. So if your velocity is increasing, then you are experiencing acceleration. If your velocity is decreasing, you experience deceleration. Now, that's, we're all pretty familiar with how that feels in a car or a roller coaster. Most, most often, it's what we call rectilinear motion. That means we're moving in a straight line. So you accelerate the car, stomp on the gas pedal, or I'm sitting in my jet and uh, accelerate off the uh, end of the carrier with a uh, catapult. Um, I will feel a force as I get pushed back into the seat. And that's a result of uh, basic acceleration. And the force is not being in equilibrium. Once I establish uh, equilibrium in flight, or in the car, you stop feeling that force in the back of the seat. You're no longer accelerating, and everything uh, is kind of normal. And that's why I can, uh, in my jet, be flying at a thousand miles per hour and take my pocket checklist and stick it up on my uh, the dashboard, if you will, the glare screen over my instrument panel. But if I leave that pocket checklist up there and uh, and uh, trap on board the carrier and come to an abrupt stop, uh, that pocket checklist will go flying forwards because mm-hmm. I experience a rapid deceleration. Now. In the spin of the Earth, we have to consider uh, what's called curvilinear motion, and that's basically uh, because of a rotation. So the, the tennis ball is spinning, um, so it, 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 tennis ball typically spins about 20 times per second. Uh, we can also call that 20 revolutions per minute. Well, there's 60 seconds in a minute, so it's just uh, multiply 20 times 60, and we'll get 1,200. That's 1,200 revolutions per minute. That thing's spinning pretty fast. Um, <coughs> So that, that's really not insignificant. Uh, so let's then consider how many revolutions per minute is the Earth spinning. So let's consider, we can kind of break this down as well. The mathematics is, is not that hard. The Earth uh, rotates at uh, the speed of uh, one revolution per 24 hours, one revolution per day. Uh, so that's uh, um, basically uh, seven times 10 to the negative fourth revolutions per minute. All right, so that's 0. 0.0007 revolutions per minute. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times the, the, the flatters will talk about the speed of the surface of the Earth at the equator if, in fact, the Earth was a, glo- was a sphere or a ball, um, and that would be about 1,000 miles per hour. And that's the right approximation. But that's a velocity. That's a constant. It's not an acceleration. Uh, and, and that's applying a, a rectilinear uh, concept to a curvilinear reality. So if the Earth is a ball, then you, you have to not consider the, um, the rectilinear velocity. You have to look at what the revolution is. Um, you know, it's expressed in omega, in uh, the Greek letter omega, uh, for uh, angular velocity. So you have to not consider uh, curve, rectilinear velocity, but curvilinear velocity, which is, again, revolutions per minute. Um, so again, the Earth is spinning at a mere uh, 0.0007 revolutions per minute. Uh, a merry-go-round, merry-go-round, or a uh, carousel revolves at about 4.3 uh, revolutions per minute. And again, that tennis ball is going at 1,200 uh, revolutions per minute. So uh, that is a significant uh, mis uh, um, comparison between what happens on a tennis ball and what happens on the Earth. If the Earth spun at 12 revolutions per minute, and yes, the, the Earth's oceans would probably not stay uh, fixed to the Earth. Uh, I don't think that the force of gravity um, would necessarily be sufficient to keep the, uh, the water uh, on the Earth. But again, you have to consider, too, that the, 
a tennis ball does have its own force of gravity, but it's much, much, much smaller, infinitesimally smaller than um, the Earth. So, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. But just considering, again, uh, the angular velocities, uh, that's just one very uh, easy uh, rebuttal to, to that kind of logic. Right. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me either as I'm reading through and watching a lot of these videos and the different objections. But a lot of people are taking these very seriously. Um, okay, here's another one. And this one is somewhat leaning towards the conspiratorial side, but I thought I'd throw it at you anyway. Uh, why don't flights cross over Antarctica? Uh, again, going back to that flat Earth model where uh, we have this uh, southern ring, this ring that is around the outside of the flat disk, um, they're suggesting, well, the reason why flights don't go over that is because that's the, that's the edge of the dome. You don't want to fly over there. You're going to crash. You know, we're going to lose pilot Johnny when he crashes into the side of the the side of the dome so they're they're raising the question well see you know flights never go over antarctica therefore you know our theory mm -hmm. has some kind of backing right yeah um that's interesting so there's a couple of reasons why one just looking at um the land masses and what's what's there um there's not a whole lot of flights flying from the uh the southern tip of south america uh, to the southern tip of Africa. Um, if they did, they probably would fly over Antarctica. Um, so they, 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 they just simply, there's really uh, very little need. Um, but someone planning a trip, you also want to look at the Great Circle Route. Uh, when you plan the Great Circle Route, it most likely will not take you uh, over the, the, the southern pole. Um, there's also complications to, to some of the navigation, uh, particularly more historically, uh, in early days, just with the magnetic um, uh, disturbances over the poles, which makes it challenging. Not only that, um, you know, a lot of times when we plan flights, we also have to consider what if something goes bad? Um, what's what's my out? Uh, and the Antarctica is probably not the most hospitable uh, location uh, to, to ditch an aircraft. Um, but you know, the the, the the southern uh, Antarctic seas uh, and, and the southern uh, Atlantic or Pacific uh, equally are not very hospitable either. Um, but, uh, you know, those, those provide, you know, some compelling reasons to, to adjust your flight plan as well. But primarily if you were to just, you know, again, plot your great circle route, uh, looking at a, a chart and, and drawing a straight line from one point to the other, the shortest distance is not going to be, um, over Antarctica, it's, it's actually going to be a, a great circle route that will probably get you close to Antarctica, but not over it. Uh, so that's really the, the biggest reason. Um, interestingly enough, though, with uh, some ballistic missiles and other uh, satellites, you do fly over Antarctica, um, and that's primarily because uh, you're not so concerned about the other factors that I just mentioned. Um, you know, with the, the case of a ballistic uh, missile, you want it to just get from its launch point to its target as quickly as possible. And you're not con so concerned about the other um, aspects. So they, they are uh, ballistic missile flight paths are planned over uh, both poles, uh, hmm. quite routine. So, um, yeah. Okay. You know, and I didn't even look. I'm, I'm kind of curious to know. I wonder if I wonder if there are any time lapse videos of a satellite crossing over Antarctica, uh, and, and you know, going from one end to the other end. Uh, I don't really know. I don't. I don't think I look. So. 
but that would be interesting to look for. Yeah. So there's, you know, the, the, the uh, a lot of the um, satellites that use image intelligence, or we call imint, um, or or collect um, data like uh, for Google Earth. Uh, so when you look on Google Earth and looking at the pictures, those are coming from satellites like um, uh, uh, Worldview. And uh, I've, I've been up close to that satellite. It's made in the same factory as uh, uh, one of my other satellites. And um, that satellite flies in a polar orbit. So it flies um, from the poles, uh, north to south, south to north, uh, in that direction. And basically allows the Earth to turn underneath it mm-hmm. uh, while it's uh, imaging uh, the globe. And it tries to stay in what we call a uh, sun-centric orbit so that when it's rotating, um, it's, it's kind of uh, catching... Uh, the surface beneath the Earth uh, during daytime, uh, during you know half of its revolution at nighttime. So during the nighttime, it can kind of be downloading some of the images and then, and then take more images so that it's got good daylight, good sun uh, sunlight comes to its back. Uh, in any case, so these satellites do uh, image the Earth uh, and go over the poles. We do have images of the poles, uh, both north and south. Um, so that that's pretty routine. And, and you know, one other interesting point <clears throat> that that demonstrates the uh, <clears throat> the spherical shape of uh, Earth is uh, the ground traces that satellites make. So if you've seen any uh, images of uh, the space shuttle or the space station as it is uh, um, uh, revolving around the Earth in, in orbit, uh, you'll see that the ground trace that it makes over, uh, like the United States of America, over the, the globe, is uh, basically like looks like a sine wave. Um, the reason for that is uh, it's kind of going up and down. Is again the, the space station or the space shuttle? They were uh, at an inclination, a certain inclination, for one. And if you took uh, a piece of paper and wrapped it around like a soda can, and then uh, instead of drawing a, a circle right around uh, that's flat along the perimeter of the can, but instead inclined it, you know, took it from, um, you know. Uh, like the top of, you know, if we take a, a Coke can and from the top of the sea uh, to the bottom of the sea and, and just draw a circle all the way around the can uh, at an angle, um, then uh, and unwrap that paper, you would see that that develops basically a sine wave. Uh, so that, again, is, uh, again, a, a material uh, or a physical reality of uh, a satellite going uh, around a spherical uh, Earth in orbit. So there's, there's like another indication that, again, the Earth is a sphere. Okay. That was, that was a really good answer. Um, how about this one? Okay. So uh, I've, I'm seeing in a lot of videos that they are confused about the moon and what causes the phases of the moon. Um, what causes the phases of the moon? And uh, why are the moon phases the same all over the Earth, no matter what the position of the sun is and where the observer is located? So the phases are, uh, in large part, due to, you know, the shadow that the Earth casts on the moon. And it has to do with uh, the orientation um, between the, uh, the sun, the Earth, and the moon. So it has to do with uh, their uh, orientations and their relationships and the distances between them. Um, so, again, if we model the, the sun at a certain size and at a certain distance and then as a sphere and model the Earth, again, likewise, uh, at a certain distance from the sun as a sphere uh, and then the moon a certain distance uh, from the Earth, 
uh, you know, alluded to that earlier, 348,000 uh, kilometers. <laughs> and, uh, and then have the, the moon uh, revolving around the Earth in an orbit about the Earth as a satellite, our, our natural satellite, then um, we just see uh, essentially the relationship between uh, the sun's light and uh, the Earth casting a shadow. Uh, on the moon in relation to where the moon is. And this is also what the, uh, produces uh, solar eclipses, um, where the, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, lunar eclipses, where the uh, the moon is uh, fully eclipsed uh, in the shadow of the sun and it will take on uh, uh, either a, a light or darkened color or even you know, the, the red blood moon color uh, as a result of uh, kind of the, uh, the sun's rays bending around uh, the lens of our atmosphere and, and hitting the moon in a, in a certain way, creating you know, the different color uh, rather than the white light um, mm-hmm. kind of filtered through our atmosphere. So, you know, the phase of the moon are also an indication, again, of, uh, of just the relationships that we uh, can mathematically uh, understand and model uh, based on uh, an understanding of a spherical um, uh, Earth, moon, and sun. Yeah, I mean, if the moon is basically 30 diameters of the Earth away, it's really far away, and so as it, it as our as our Earth is rotating, um, that image is not going to change a whole lot because it's so far away. Right. Yeah, and that's a, that's the other aspect. I didn't answer that part of it. Why it looks the same no matter where we are uh, on on the Earth, um, and, and that again is in a relationship to the the distances um, between the the uh, the Sun, the Earth, and the Moon. Okay. And it's, yeah. you know, it's geometry, it's mathematics, really. Uh, so, you know, the geometry and the angles uh, are pretty, uh, uh, pretty straightforward. Well, in that same vein, uh, the next question, uh, and this one, this one's kind of interesting, but it's, it's the same type idea. Um, another claim made against the spherical Earth is that uh, if the Earth were sp- a spinning globe that orbited the sun each year, the Earth's spin axis would not stay aligned with the North Star. Uh, this is because as we shift from one side of the Earth's orbit to the other, our perspective changes. So why doesn't the position of the North Star, or, or, or I'm sorry, rather, why does the position of the North Star stay the same as the Earth rotates around the Sun? Right, yeah. But, uh, I've tried to understand the real, I guess, premise uh, behind the question. I think I think the misunderstanding of, of the axis um, of the Earth's axis, the Earth's axis itself does not rotate or uh, uh, mutate. Is another word uh, folks can look up: m u t a t e. Um, it it is kind of fixed and translates uh, through space. So it, um, if you just hold your arm up at a certain angle, and that would be uh, the tilt of the Earth, and um, it's about 23 degrees, and and then just move your arm uh, kind of around in a circle, but keep that. Um, keep that angle in, in your forearm, you'll notice that uh, your your fingers are basically pointing in the same kind of at the same point uh, uh, on your ceiling as you move it around. And with the North Star, the North Star is significantly uh, further away. So consider then if you did that and you just saw, kind of tried to look at where your your fingers are pointing, maybe towards the moon or somewhere distant point up in space, uh, it's really not changing at all. So it's just um, translating. Uh, through space, uh, keeping that same angle as the Earth rotates about it and as the Earth revolves around the sun. So the the angle 
uh, as observed from you know deep space, if you could step away from the Earth, even just a one astronomic unit, uh, step away one or two from the Earth, you would see that the again that the axis of the Earth doesn't change; it, it just moves uh, through space, keeping that same angle. Um, and and I've 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 seen this on on many different uh, sites, and the idea, you know, the the Polaris or the North Star, it stays in the same point. Here we are, we're spinning. Uh, we're going around the sun, and also we're part of one of the, you know, the spiral arms of the Milky Way, so we're moving there, and somehow it stays in the same spot in our sky, and um, it, it makes sense to me if we're traveling in that spiral arm, and the North Star and all the other stars around us, they're with us, they're going with us on this this journey, and so we're we're going to continue going like clockwork. Um, as we travel within this spiral arm, and, and yeah, Polaris is not going to change its position. We're going to stay right there. Right, and that's just the, given yeah the great distance that Polaris is from the Earth, uh, which makes it a very good reference point. Right. Um, many many of the stars themselves are good reference points as well. Um, interestingly enough, the word planet uh, comes from uh, I believe the Latin that means wandering star because the planets don't kind of stay more or less in the same uh, location um, through the night. They, they kind of wander about, uh, particularly, and, and even over the year, whereas at particular seasons, you know, uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, Orion is, is uh, clearly obvious uh, in the winter and then uh, not uh, is not uh, um, visible in the summer um, and, and various other constellations as well in their uh, relationship, you know, or some major or some minor, uh, other um, constellation. So it has to do with, you know, one, their distance. Um, so many of them appear more or less fixed or, or relatively stationary in the night sky as opposed to like the planets. Again, that literally mean wandering stars. Right. Well, uh, Jason, it has been a pleasure to have you on. We could probably go for a couple more hours, but um, I think we've answered some of the biggest claims by this movement. I know that uh, I'm going to get some responses back. Absolutely. And I welcome those. And uh, who knows, maybe I might be shooting you an email here in a month or two and saying, hey, this is what everybody's saying. What do you think about these questions? And, you know, maybe I can con you into coming back. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, you know, I, I hopefully I'll be able to uh, get some more work done on uh, my website at, at the Envil Ministry and uh, maybe address some of these uh, questions. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll post uh, some of my answers to your questions there as well. Uh, I appreciate great. the opportunity and uh, uh, great uh, kind of looking into these things and uh, kind of understanding uh, some of these, these arguments. And it's a good exercise to, again, look at our map, look at our assumptions, uh, question. You know, I think questioning is good. That's why I became, uh, or that's partly what uh, resulted in my becoming a, a Christian. Um, yeah. You know, I really I question the Bible. I question it very strongly and, uh, you know, initially just simply rejecting it, but uh out of ignorance, and once I really started looking into it, reading it, uh, really again with the intent to, to dismantle the Bible, uh, it dismantled my own arguments, and uh, um, eventually through the preaching of the gospel, I realized my need uh, for a Savior, uh, the sin debt that I owed to God, and that yet He was rich in mercy, uh, willing to forgive me, and uh, uh, the resurrection of Jesus was a historical reality. Uh, that proved everything uh, Jesus taught and everything claimed in Scripture, ultimately. Um, 
and that indeed we can be forgiven of our sins and uh, be given the gift of everlasting life. And so uh, when I understood that, realized it, that, uh, accepted it, you know, uh, repented, that is, my mind changed. I had brain surgery performed by the, the Holy Spirit, uh, realizing uh, my position before God and uh, my reality as a, as a sinner in need of salvation. Um, I was born again, and uh, I'm thankful for that and uh, for the questioning. And then, you know, from then on, uh, really looking into the science, understanding the science, uh, and then exposing a lot of the flaws. Uh, so many things that are reported as science are anything but science. They're not observational. They're not repeatable. And so I encourage people to look into that. Um, you know, first and foremost, trust God's Word, and then uh, look at the observation of sinful men and see if they can be trusted based on, uh, you know, good um, good understanding, uh, good science that, uh, again, is observational and repeatable. So, again, I, I appreciate the opportunity, and um, I hope people uh, uh, are encouraged and uh, look into these things a little more deeply. Amen. And I know my listeners are going to love this show. Um, again, friends, if you want to get a hold of Jason, you can uh, find him at his website, The Anvil Min- Ministry. Let me try that again. TheAnvilMinistry.com. Also, be looking forward to his podcast as it's coming up here. Uh, Jason, again, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here. It's not science. That's what's going it, to come. It's, uh, not, it's rocket not rocket science. science. <laughs> yep, yep. Okay, that was terrible. It's not rocket science. Boy, I'm stumbling all over that. Um, okay, good. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on, Jason. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, I'm going to stop right here. Guys, again, wow, very good stuff. Am I done with this flat earth uh, model theory uh, um, and, and debunking this idea? Probably not. There's so much on the internet. There's so much to talk about, so much to consider that, you know, I this might be something that I will come back to uh, again sometime, maybe uh, later in 2017. I don't know. There's just so much that's being done in this area. So many uh, various arguments that are being set forth. There's starting to be a little bit of disagreement amongst the movement on uh, how to make this model work. And I can see why, because it, it doesn't seem to take into account all the evidence. It just doesn't work. Anyway, whatever the case, uh, during the last podcast, uh, as I was concluding, I mentioned that I was looking for somebody to take care of um taking my old podcast, maybe just one 45 minute one a week, but condensing a bunch of the uh, maybe three or four old 10 to 15 minute podcasts into one bigger one. And then, uh, you know, kind of editing out some of the intros and the exits and stuff like that. I found somebody to take care of that. Praise God. Thank you, Seth. Um, And so that's, that's taken care of. Um, Now, if there's anybody out there who's interested in trying to make these videos, or I'm sorry, make the podcast into uh, YouTube videos, that might be a little bit more of a task. And and, um, so anyway, yeah, if anybody's interested, please contact me. I would love to talk about that. So anyway, thanks for listening, guys. I love you guys. And we'll see you next week.